Howdy, everyone. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking with that uh, intro, but howdy. Welcome to Unsafe Space. Today is what? Wednesday, March 23rd, 2022. You're watching Dangerous Thoughts with me, Carter Laren. Uh, this is a series we do every Wednesday evening, uh, usually live, focused on the application of reason, reality-based epistemology, the ethics of individualism, and the metaphysics of a non-crazy person. My primary credential there is that I don't have a degree in philosophy, so I remain unscathed. Um, welcome uh, to chat. Uh, today we're going to talk about, I think the, almost the entire show is going to be at least based on uh, Ketanji Brown-Jackson. I mean, the show's not really going to be about her. We're going to use her confirmation hearings to have an uncomfortable conversation about uh, the nature of racism, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, and its relation to modern-day critical race theory slash anti-racism. And we'll throw in a bunch of trans-activist ideology just for fun uh, at the end. First, <laughs> someone in chat says, you started by showing us a lie. I did. I showed you the cake. I know. The cake is the cake is a lie. Um Anyway, if you're new to Unsafe Space, welcome. Uh, in addition to this series, which is Dangerous Thoughts, uh, we have a lot of other series. We have 451 Degrees with Alex Maselli, which is about censorship. We have a series called Great Reset with Ian Kay, otherwise known as Comics Division. If you can't figure out what that's about, you're in the wrong place. We have another series called Narrative Dissonance, which is new. It's live on Mondays uh, and has a, features a panel of journalists to talk about the news. And on Fridays, we have reintroduced a genetically modified version of the Token Minority Report. Um, and we have some kind of weird intern that helps out with that show. Uh, that may or may not be a little bit more frivolous than the other series. Also, before we start, please do us a solid gently. You can just gently tap that subscribe button. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to smash it or anything. Just tap it lightly. Uh, it's free. It's easy. We're streaming on Utreon, YouTube, Rumble, Odyssey. So subscribe wherever you are, please. Also, please consider heading over to unsafespace.com. You can watch all our shows there without any censorship. Uh, sometimes we have to stream not on YouTube, but uh, we're always streaming. And all of our shows are always up at unsafespace.com. You can also unload all that fiat currency, that useless fiat currency over there if you really have a need to do that. Um, paid members get to hang out in uh, the Discord server with all of us. And the perks just get better from there. You get your name and credits. Uh, you might even get a mug that will give the TSA agents uh, a good story to tell their moms when they get home after a long day of groping. Okay, um, let's get started on today's show. Actually, wait, before we before we start on today's show, I want to give a quick shout out to um, the Babylon Bee. Uh, the Babylon Bee was suspended from Twitter. I know it's it's hard to imagine. They were suspended from Twitter for this. Here's their tweet. They wrote the Babylon Bee's man of the year is Rachel Levine. <clears throat> uh Nice. Um, Twitter says it will restore their account if if Seth Dillon accepts Jessica Yanev as his Lord and Savior. Uh, no, I think uh, they said they'll restore the account if Babylon B deletes the tweet, which the CEO, Seth Dillon, says they're not going to do. So good for them. Um, good for Babylon B. Kudos to you. Apparently, there's a website called BabylonB.com that has all their tweets on it, So plus other stuff. So you can get... No loss. You can go check them out there. 
All right. Now let's get started. People in chat already asking toughy, tough biological questions. All right. That's about all the fun we're going to have today, talking about Babylon Bees. Time to get serious and offend as many people as possible with today's episode. Now, Katanji Brown-Jackson is on the board. If you haven't noticed, by the way, uh, if you're you know living... Uh, I was going to say living under a rock, but that's condescending. If you have a real life and haven't been on Twitter and haven't been paying attention to the circus that is in Washington, D.C., you might not know that Biden did, in fact, fulfill his, his promise to um, nominate a woman of color for the Supreme Court. That woman's name is Ketanji Brown Jackson. Uh, and she is currently in the middle of confirmation hearings before Congress. Now, uh, Jackson is on the board of a private school called the Georgetown Day School. I guess that's different than the Georgetown Night School. Uh, and like so many so-called, you know, progressive schools, the Georgetown Day School embraces all of the most fashionably atrocious ideas that you can possibly, possibly imagine. So Ted Cruz questioned her about this, and he talked about books that were part of the curriculum at the school. And uh, he talked about books that were assigned or recommended. One of the books was Critical Race Theory, an introduction by Richard Delgado, who's the godfather of critical race theory. Um, another one was How to Be Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. And another one, which he dwelled on uh, for good reason, uh, is a book called, I shit you not, Anti-Racist Baby, which I think we've actually mentioned on Unsafe Space on other shows before. This is a real book. Um, it's for pre-K. Well, Senator Cruz said it was for pre-K to second grade. I guess maybe that's what the, the school recommends. Um, actually, according to Amazon, it's it's for babies through three years old. That's the thing. It's a cardboard book. It's one of those cardboard books that babies can chew on or whatever. They can't ruin the paper. So it's clearly designed for a very young child. Um you know, I don't know, we're, we have a baby, we're more into the very hungry caterpillar and stuff, but I guess, you know, some people are, they got the cardboard anti-racist baby book. It also comes with a learning guide, which I, I printed out a, a copy of. There's the anti-racist, because you, you don't want to get a cardboard baby book without knowing how to present the material to your child, baby, to your baby. Um, so that's nice. This is a nice little learning guide. Um, by the way, it's published by um, Penguin Classics, the Penguin Classroom. So thank you, Penguin Books, for publishing both this book and this handy guide so we know how to indoctrinate properly, because otherwise it will be tough. Anyway, he just finished, Ted Cruz had just finished presenting uh, a few pages from this book. Um, and, you know, with the kind of drama and gravitas you would expect, and uh, he shows her shows her some pages from this book, and then he turns to Judge Jackson and he asks her if she agrees that babies are racist. Uh, let's see what she says. Um, do do you agree with this book that is being taught with kids that that babies are racist, Senator? <laughs> 
I do not believe that any child should be made to feel as though they are racist or though they are not valued or though they are less than, that they are victims, that they are oppressors. I don't believe in any of that. But what I will say is that when you asked me whether or not this was taught in schools, critical race theory, my understanding is that critical race theory as an academic theory is taught in law schools. And to the extent that you were asking the question, I understood you to be addressing public schools. Georgetown Day School, just like the religious school that Justice Barrett was on the board of is a private school. Okay, so, so you agree critical race theory is taught at Georgetown Day School? I don't know because the board is not, um, the board does not control the curriculum. The board does not focus on that. That's not what we do as board members. So I'm actually not sure. Who knows? Who knows? So let's take a couple, let's, let's, a couple notes on this. First of all, she does think about her answer. If you'll notice at the beginning, this is a carefully chosen answer, which is fine. It's actually good, I guess, that she's thoughtful. I that's you know a fine quality. Um, but then her answer, she says, "I do not believe that any child should be made to feel racist, not valued, victims, oppressors, blah blah blah." Um, that's distinctly different from saying, "Nope." Babies aren't racist, Senator. That's a different answer. I don't think they should be made to feel these things. That's different than saying, no, they're not racist. And it's a savvy attempt of her uh, on her part to have her cake and eat it too, not to overuse the cake that we talk about here on Unsafe Space quite a lot, but she's trying to have her cake and eat it too. She's trying to placate the critics by saying, look, I'm not mean. I'm not calling babies racist. I wouldn't do that. But she also needs to placate the ideologues. Don't worry. I didn't say babies weren't racist. We all know they are. I just, I can't say it in front of the room for, you know, regular normies, right? It's okay. So she didn't say that they weren't racist. And I think this is significant. Um, I mean, it was thoughtful. It, she thought about it. So it was, it's intentional. Um, and therefore, I think we need to assume that she believes babies are in fact racist. Now, why the hell would anyone believe this? This might sound a little bit crazy. Why would anyone believe that babies are racist? Well, um, there's a false dichotomy at play here. In, in leftist parlance, there is a false dichotomy. And that dichotomy is um, you're either anti-racist, and by that it means, you know, anti-racist means you accept uh, a bunch of ideas that disparity in outcomes between racial groups is proof of systemic racism. That there's a univariate cause. It's automatically systemic racism. You accept the idea that almost all values in American culture are uniquely white values, right? And therefore, um, the correct moral posture in relation to those values is antagonism. So these are values like individualism, meritocracy, reason, the concept of objectivity right? Scientific method, math, showing up on time to parent household. I'm not making any of this stuff up. If you watch uh, 
any of Unsafe Space, you've probably heard a lot of this stuff before, if not all of it. I've, I've quoted Gloria Hall on objectivity being the reification of white thought, which then Kimberly Crenshaw takes and runs with. We've we've talked about the Smithsonian Institute's little infographic about the whiteness of individualism and meritocracy and scientific method and showing up on time and math and all that stuff. Crenshaw writes about, you know, assumptions about two parent households and sexuality being white. So you're either anti-racist, which means you're on a moral crusade against all of these things. That's what anti-racist means. Or if you're not that, anything else is racist. That's the, that's the dichotomy. That's the false dichotomy. Um, and obviously rejection of this dichotomy, saying it's a false dichotomy, is racist. It's, it's proof that you're racist, right? Um, conscious rejection is obviously proof that you're racist, but even hesitancy. Like, I'm not sure. This seems like maybe that's proof of white fragility and that you're racist. Um, and that means that even rejection out of ignorance or non-acceptance of this, like if you're a baby and you don't accept concepts because you don't understand them yet, that makes you racist. Because um, you're either anti-racist and doing all these things actively, or you're racist. That's the dichotomy. Um because you know, the only way to mitigate your racism is to accept this this ideology and then try and apply these anti-racist, uh, you know, ideas. There's no null hypothesis with this, uh, and obviously any theory with no null hypothesis is just inherently dishonest. So, um, so what this means is that you know whiteness is characterized uh, as an original sin, and and whiteness characterized by those values that I was like individualism math showing up on time right that's that's your original sin and if you're white you're born racist no redemption is possible but you can be anti-racist as a means of paying perpetual penance that's part of this ideology but you can never actually be clean you'll always be guilty right um and you know the reason for that the reason that you're always guilty is it keeps you in a perpetual state of psychological subservience which is the goal so i have to conclude that Katanji, who is, uh, let's face it, if we're going to say critical race theory is a legal theory, and she's a lawyer and has been for decades and is being considered for the Supreme Court, let's assume she's familiar with the legal theory. So I have to conclude uh, that she doesn't, be, because she doesn't begin her answer with, no, babies aren't racist, she must believe in this ideology, right? Because any normal person would say, no, babies aren't racist. That's stupid. Um, and she also repeats this trope in her answer, if you'll notice, that CRT, critical race theory, is an academic theory taught in law schools. Now, there's an interesting flat-out denial of reality here, which seems to happen a lot with psychological dysfunction. There's a flat-out denial of reality because Ted Cruz had just showed her one of the books on the list which was called Critical Race Theory and Introduction by Richard, Del Richard Delgado, who was one of the, the godfathers of CRT. So she said, like, I think it's only taught in law schools. He just showed you the book, Introduction to Critical Race Theory. That's And it, this is not a law school, right? So, you know, of course, uh, CRT is taught um, along with a lot of other critical theories in a variety of humanities departments. Uh, you know, across, you know, across the, I was going to say across the states, but actually, you know, across the globe. 
right? Let's just take a look here. I'm going to show you something just so people can. Uh, it's just we'll do our we'll do a little homework. All right. What is this? This is oops. Let me put it on screen. Criticalrace.org. Here's a list of schools. Here's a list of schools. Let's just look at let's look at uh, Carnegie Mellon. I like Pittsburgh. Let's go to Carnegie Mellon. Let's see what activity they have on the critical race training. Uh, Anti-racism, bias, and diversity training, mandatory intersectional orientation, curriculum changes and requirements, anti-racism, anti-sexism, racial bias, cultural competency, requirements for graduation. This is not law school. Curriculum changes, cultural competency required course. We'll look at power and privilege. It's not law. None of this is law school. CMU School of Architecture will host its first anti-racist school of architecture virtual symposium, blah, blah, blah. Faculty staff requirements. That doesn't look like, uh, oops, sorry about that. That doesn't look like, um, doesn't look like it's not, it's only taught in law schools, even at the university level, right? Here's another college near where I grew up, Cornell. Cornell. Uh, let's see what anti-racism, bias, diversity, training, curriculum changes. A four-credit educational requirement covering systemic racism, colonialism, bias, and inequity will be developed. Okay. I mean, this stuff, you know, in fact, all faculty will be expected to participate in programming on race, programming, they even say it outright, programming on race, racism, and colonialism in the United States. So uh, clearly this is not uh, just taught in law schools, even if we're going to pretend that it's not being taught also in apparently primary schools and, and secondary schools, right? So, all right, so she, she repeats that kind of trope. Um, you know, but of course, when, when people say CRT is being taught in schools, when Ted Cruz says that, what he means and whatever, what people mean when they're saying this stuff is it's being applied. That's what they mean, right? Um, and saying it's not being applied when you look at uh, the book list, like the one at Georgetown Day School is just dishonest. Clearly, it's being applied. Right. Um, it's kind of like saying, hey, <laughs> theology is taught in schools and then have the response be no, 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 no. Theology is an academic discipline that we only teach in seminaries. We're just teaching kids the Ten Commandments. Don't you want them to know morals? Like, <laughs> regardless of what you think about religious schooling, like clearly that would be teaching a form of theology. We teaching religion in school. You wouldn't you wouldn't say no. Uh, sorry. Theology is only taught in seminaries. It's just, you know. It's an academic thing. No. So since CRT is in the news again, thanks to Judge Jackson here, um, I wanted to use this as an opportunity to just basically offend everyone. I want to use this as an opportunity to talk about the 1964 Civil Rights Act, and I want to connect it to current critical race theory slash intersectional anti-racist madness that's happening. Because I think this is a good example of how compromising your principles, even when you feel like it's for a good cause, can come and bite you in the ass 60 years later. Or maybe not even understanding your principles, just knowing like racism bad, but not knowing what that means or why 
um, can lead you down the wrong path. Um, and look, you know, standing up for your principles can make you a radical because it might open you up to really horrible accusations like you're a racist, right? So um, let's start with a pretty fundamental, it's, it's going to be, this is going to be all, it's going to be it's all focused on this today, guys. So strap in. Let's start with a fundamental moral question, a pretty fundamental moral question. Is discrimination based on race wrong? And if it is, why? It's not something people think about much because usually they just knee-jerk reflexively say, well, of course it's wrong. Why? And this, the answer to this can get messier than you think. So let's start with the word discrimination. We can look it up in the Oxford English Dictionary, just as a starting point. Um, and the first sense in which discrimination is used, I'll just pull it up here. It says senses relating to the action of making a distinction. Just definition 1A, which is probably one of the most common, it's a non-charged you know, definition. It says the action of perceiving, noting, or making a distinction between things. Now, that by that definition, discrimination doesn't necessarily include a moral judgment, right? It could be a mere preference. You're just distinguishing between things, right? Now, you might say another kind of knee-jerk reaction, understandable one. I'm not picking on anyone, but you might say, well, acting on an aesthetic preference based on physical appearance is immoral, right? Like, you know... You can't do that. You can only judge actions as immoral, as moral or immoral. And you, like, if you act on a, an aesthetic preference based on on physical appearance like this, uh, that's just an immoral thing to do. You could make that argument, All right? But there's a problem with that argument. What about your romantic life? Is tall, dark, and handsome an aesthetic preference based on physical appearance? And is it, you know, correlated to genetics? Right? If you've ever considered anyone's looks before you date him or her, you've discriminated based on appearance. Obviously, you have. Right? Discrimination based on someone's appearance plays at least some role in everyone's romantic choices, much to the chagrin of radical trans activists. Who would have us practice a form of Marxism applied to sex? Um, you know, they 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 treat uh, personal preference with the same disdain that they treat private property, and for the same reason, by the way. Anyway, um, back to racism. You might say, okay, well, you're allowed to act on preferences for physical appearance so long as they're uncorrelated to race. That's okay, right? Well, why? Why is that? I mean, physical attraction is emotional. It's feeling-based, as it should be, by the way. Right? You don't reason your you don't reason your way into uh, being attracted to someone. At least I've never heard of that being successful. So you 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 could argue that emotions are ultimately kind of related to some combination of your philosophic beliefs and genetic predispositions and childhood experience. I mean, you could 
I think probably maybe all those are, are in there. But regardless, your emotional responses can't be easily changed, and perhaps not at all. So if someone has an attraction based on physical appearance and that attraction is correlated to race, like they prefer particular race romantically, and you think acting on that is immoral, if that's your position, that acting on that is immoral, then you're basically an advocate for sexual Marxism, and you just recognize that, right? You're saying that people must act against their own emotions and date all people equally regardless of their personal preference. Now, that's an immoral mandate to apply to people, but you could try. Now, you might say, okay, this is ridiculous. None of this applies to romantic choices. This is a straw man, Carter, because reasons. I don't know what your reasons would be, but whatever. Um, it's just, you know, stop applying it to romantic choices. Okay. Let me read. I'm going to use the learning guide to the anti-racist baby. I found something in this guide, which I was fascinated by. It says, research has shown that babies as young as six months old show racial preferences. I thought, really? That can't be true. So I looked it up. It is in fact 100% true. And once I thought about it and read about it, it makes perfect sense. Here's an article from Science Daily, just summarizing some research. There's a lot of this. Two studies by researchers at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education at the University of Toronto and their collaborators from the US, UK, France, and China show that six to nine month old infants demonstrate racial bias in favor of members of their own race and racial bias against those of other races. Well, oh, we're getting to racist babies now, guys. Be careful. Here's some quotes. Uh, according to Gabriel Shao, says, these findings suggest that a race-based bias emerges without experience with other race individuals. In other words, if you uh, if the baby hasn't seen people of a particular race, they're going to be biased against them. Uh, <clears throat> Dr. Lee says, these findings thus point to the possibility that aspects of racial bias later in life may arise from our lack of exposure to other race individuals in infancy. Uh, Dr. Shao again says, an important finding is that infants will learn from people they are most exposed to. Um, and then, uh, let's see, uh, as explained by Dr. Paul Quinn and Francis Allison, professor at University of Delaware, it's as if the infants trust the own race adult more than the other race adult when both adults are unreliable. They did an experiment with unreliable stuff. Uh, and then, of course, their conclusion, because these guys are all woke, implicit, implicit race biases tend to be subconscious, pernicious, and insidious. Wow, these pernicious, insidious fucking babies. It permeates almost all of our social interactions from healthcare to commerce, employment, politics, and dating. Because of that, dating, they're citing dating. Mm -hmm. uh, because of that, it's very important to study where these kinds of biases come from and use that information to try and prevent racial biases from developing. Can't have racial biases because that's bad, bad, bad. So, of course, I read this and I thought about it and I was like, you know what, actually, this makes complete sense evolutionarily. Like, why didn't I think of this beforehand? Of course, of course. Right? The baby is going to use visual cues and maybe other cues to identify in-group and out-of-group. And remember, babies are 100% reliable on others for their survival. Right? As, as the father of a almost five-month-old, I can attest, they have a very strong preference for mom. That makes sense. 
right? Even if even if mom wasn't biological but had been the primary caregiver, there's a preference. There's a strong preference for known entities. Now, according to these studies, it takes six months for that preference to manifest. So that kind of makes sense. They need to they need to be around for a little while and learn and see, like, okay, now I understand. Although, you know, obviously our child's like most babies below six months has preferences for certain family members, right? But if you kind of, uh, if you put the baby in a situation where there are no known entities, which is what they're doing with these studies, right? They're not testing mom against stranger, right? Stranger and stranger. Um, well, what do the babies do? They're likely to use visual heuristics to distinguish between tribe and outsider. Because they're more likely to be protected in the tribe. And tribes are more genetically related than outsiders. That's how we evolved. So that makes perfect sense, actually. It makes perfect sense. So babies do show preference based on race. So does this mean, as Ted Cruz would ask us, are babies racist? Now, you might again say, Carter, all this, this is all straw man. This is not what we mean by discrimination. And I would agree with you. This is not what most of us mean by discrimination. Most of us don't give a crap about baby preferences for races or even racial preferences for dating or others. No one cares. Mo normal people, right? Um, that's not what we mean when we say discrimination. So what do we mean when we castigate someone for discriminating? Well, I think there's basically two main categories of, of things that are abhorrent to us. One is uh, when people apply their aesthetic preferences irrationally. So you might have a preference for tall, dark, and handsome or blonde with a great ass or whatever when you're swiping left and right on Tinder. I actually don't know which way. Is swipe right the like? I don't know. Um, you might have a preference for that. But when you're hiring an accountant, those attributes seem pretty uncorrelated to the purpose of hiring an accountant, right? So if you apply those preferences, it offends our sense of fairness and our sense for, like, there should be some kind of meritocracy, right? People get her like, oh, that, that's not right, right? But I'll say, and this, you know, maybe people get pissed at me, but look, even then, applying those preferences doesn't necessarily make you immoral if you're honest about it. If you say, look, my accountant's going to sit right out the window to my office. I want them to be attractive by my standards because I'm going to have to look at them all day. That's part of the job. Now, you might be viewed as creepy to care so much about what your accountant looks like, and maybe rightly so you're viewed as creepy. And people might ostracize you for being creepy, right? That's that's true. It doesn't necessarily mean you're immoral, but it's a little maybe a little bit creepy. Why do you care so much, right? Um, and look, to the extent that your hiring standards are irrational, um, you're introducing inefficiencies into your business that over time will harm your success, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, look, maybe, I don't know, maybe Hugh Hefner only, uh, only hired uh, hot accountants. I have no idea. And maybe everyone that worked with him was like, yeah, that's, we know what we're getting into. This is Hugh. He wants us to all, you know, wear bikinis and whatever. Like, I, who knows? And, you know, a bunch of people were like, that guy's creepy. I don't want to work with him. All right. That's fine. Now, of course, we don't want the government policing this, by the way. It's a clear uh, violation of individual rights, including property rights, to force, uh, to use force, to mandate that someone hires a certain person or why they hire people or all that stuff is, is a violation of individual rights. Um, 
on top of being in a violation of rights, it also invites the prosecution of personal psychology, right? And suddenly, you know, you get bureaucrats and, and uh, prosecutors saying, well, we think you hired this person for this invalid reason and not for this valid reason. And blah, blah, blah. it's literally a form of thought policing. So you don't want that. But that's one of the examples where people say that's kind of a, a rude. If, if someone's using racial preference to, to make hiring decisions like that, we'd say that's, you know, we don't like that. It shouldn't matter. You shouldn't be using that. Um, you still don't want the government policing it. So the other thing we mean when when we castigate someone for being discriminating racially is um, is that when it's not just and this is like I think more abhorrent and worse. It's not an aesthetic preference, but it's a judgment about morality or fitness. I don't mean physical fitness. I mean fitness for a task, right? So um, in morality, an example would be um, look. You you judge a particular race to be less than or 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 better than or whatever, right? Now, of course, moral judgment can only be properly applied to individuals. Actually, the actions of individuals. I've we've talked about this before. I'm not going to get all into that. But if you morally condemn someone based on um, their race or their membership in any group, uh, that condemnation is itself immoral, right? With the caveat that. Uh, I guess if they're a membership in a group based on beliefs or ideology or behavior, it might, it might be a fine categorization. So like if there's a, if they're members of a, the baby killing cult, like, okay, you can condemn them or the, you know, the psychopathic serial killers club. Yeah. Okay. But you know, barring those kind of cases, it's immoral to condemn someone based on membership in a group. Right, because it's a corruption of the concept of morality. Morality is judgment of an individual based on his or her actions, and you're not doing that. So, that's that's one of the most egregious examples of discrimination that we mean when we say racial discrimination. We don't like that, and we shouldn't. It's immoral. We say this is you can't you can't judge people like that. And also, people judge uh, another kind of uh, variant of this is judgment about fitness, fitness for a particular task. And again, I don't, I don't mean health, but I mean like imagine, imagine Uber or Lyft or whatever, some car service says, look, I'm not going to hire Asian women to drive and we all know why, right? <laughs> so again, barring outlier examples like, you know, bad driver's clubs and stuff, judging uh, the fitness for a particular task based on membership into a, a group that's orthogonally defined, right, is irrational. Right. You can take almost any trait driving, right? Trait of driving, skill of driving. Even if there are differences in driving abilities on average between groups, which I don't know, maybe there are. Uh, I haven't looked that up. The differences between individual abilities within groups is far, far greater. Right. So, um, I'm going to, a lot of people don't get this statistically. I'm just going to throw this up so people can see what I'm talking about. This is a, uh, this is a bell curves in height and weight for men and women, women, women's, uh, height and weight are in red here. Men are in blue for those listening. There's substantial overlap to these bell curves. Okay. Now, if you're going to hire someone to work in a warehouse and you say, 
Because remember, men can be at either end of this, this bell curve. Women can be at either end of this bell curve and anywhere. So there's the whole thing. So if you say, well, I'm going to hire someone to work in my warehouse. They got to move boxes and, you know, whatever, do stuff, it's physical labor, and they got to be able to reach things and whatever. And you say, I'm going to only, I'm just going to go based off of gender because, look, on average, men are taller and heavier. We'll say pretend that heavier correlates to strength, although it doesn't necessarily, but um, but men are stronger on average. So we'll say, okay, look, I'm going to hire because they're, they're on average higher. Well, if that's what you do, you may end up hiring Aziz Ansari instead of, you know, Gina Carano. That's a dumb hiring choice. <laughs> it's wrong. Um Gina would be much better at that particular task, right? And and that you know that's what you that's that's your problem when you do that. So just like the application of aesthetic preferences when it's not warranted, judging individual fitness based on group membership is irrational. It doesn't make any sense. Um, and you know obviously you're introducing inefficiencies into your business over time that will harm your success. Blah blah blah. Um, but also because competence is so highly valued in, in society, or at least used to be, should be, um, sometimes it's incorrectly linked with ideas about moral superiority or inferiority. Right? Sometimes we link those two. This kind of discrimination is also something that we rightly detest as society. If people are saying, well, I'm not going to hire this kind of group because I think they're incompetent at this. It's not as only is it irrational, but we view that incompetence as linked to a moral superiority or, or inferiority claim. And... We detest that. So fundamentally, what's wrong with racial and other forms of discrimination is that they're anti-individualist. They're fundamentally collectivist mentalities, right? You're substituting group membership status for a rational evaluation of an individual based on his or her own merits. That's what you're doing, right? You're seeing someone as primarily a fungible member of a particular group rather than as an individual who may also happen to be a member of a particular group. Um, and it's important to note here that you can't use collectivist justifications to solve an epidemic of collectivist thought. So if you have an academic epidemic of racism and you recognize that racism is inherently a collectivist idea, that's what it is, you can't go about trying to solve racism through a different collectivist structure. It won't work. So we're going to look at the 1964 Civil Rights Act now in an effort to really, really piss people off. Um, but before we do, let's just do a palate cleanser. There's some Jan Vermeer. Enjoy. Take a moment. We don't have to talk about racism without a break. There we go. Okay, your palate cleanser is done. Let's look at the United States prior to 1964. Now, of course, racism uh, was much more wide, widespread in American culture. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, particularly in the South, but it wasn't limited to the South. Everything from attitudes about interracial relationships to business owners discriminating in terms of employment and services, just being being just racist, right? To outright killings. I mean, there's the I met Till's famous. Uh, I think in 1955, 14-year-old kid killed, and the killers got off scot-free. I think he was killed because he whistled at a white woman or something. I mean, horrible, horrible stuff, right? Um, but not all of the racism 
was what I'll call like free market racism like this. It wasn't all just people acting like that. Um, and, in other words, what I mean is the government used its monopoly on the initiation of the use of force to foist a racist agenda on the population, even if they didn't want it. And let's talk about that for a minute. The 14th Amendment was in place since 1868. So it had, it's been in, you know, if we're going to look at 1964, we're talking almost 100 years where the 14th Amendment had been in place. And the 14th Amendment has an equal protection clause. I'm going to read the equal protection clause because uh, I think it's just important to hear the language. It says, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Now I want you to notice a couple things about this. Uh, my arguments against government generally aside, this language is individualist. It's using individualist language. There's no mention of group membership, I, I guess, aside from citizenry. But if you're going to have a government, you're going to have citizens. So there's no there's no group mention here, right? This is everyone. You can't deny anyone this due process, equal protection under the law. It's individualist language, okay? Um it's also aimed at states, not private businesses or people. It's saying, hey, states, you can't do this. You can't do this. Now, also, notably, it didn't work at all. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's sad that that didn't work, but it didn't. Many states, um, many state governments were intent on promoting and normalizing racism. The Supreme Court supported them in this. There's the famous uh, 1896 Plessy versus Ferguson case, the separate but equal. Right. Um, and in that case was was a guy named Homer Plessy who violated a Louisiana law, the Louisiana Separate Car Act of 1890 and went on a car for white people. So until, you know, Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, there was a plethora of Jim Crow laws, all pushing some kind of racism. And I'm going to read some examples just so we, because I want to be sober about the state of the country. This was, this was going on. And these were state governments doing it. State governments. This isn't like the evil businessman doing blah, 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 like in the movies. These are state governments. Here's one in, here's an Alabama one. It shall be unlawful for a Negro and a white person to play together or in company with each other at any game of pool or billiards. Hey, because that's part, that's the state's business, right? Thanks, Alabama. Um, President Calvin Coolidge, by the way, who was uh, not the best guy, said the business of America is business. So he was like, okay, look, we're going to, government can control business because you have no rights. There's no individual sovereignty. Government can tell you how to run your business. Let's look at some examples. Alabama, uh, employers have to have separate toilet facilities. Uh, another one in Alabama, white and colored persons need to be separated uh, when they're in restaurants by a solid partition extending from the floor upwards to a distance of seven feet or higher. In Georgia, 
Uh, all persons licensed to conduct the business of selling beer or wine shall serve either white people exclusively or colored people exclusively and shall not set the two races within the same room. These are This is the states telling business owners how to run their fucking businesses. And they're telling them you must be racist. Georgia. Uh, it shall be unlawful. This is a great one. It shall be unlawful for any amateur white baseball team to play baseball on any vacant lot or baseball diamond within two blocks of a playground devoted to the Negro race. It shall be unlawful for any amateur colored baseball team to play baseball in any vacant lot or baseball diamond within two blocks of any playground devoted to the white race. Oh, that's good. We're policing. Got to make sure baseball's racist. Uh, Louisiana, this is the law that would that Plessy violated. All carriers must provide equal but separate seats for white and colored. Also, by the way, it's not just your businesses and playgrounds and pool halls that are apparently the state thinks it has power over. But marriage. Hey, California, here in California, um, all marriages of white persons with Negroes, Mongolians, members of the Malay race, or mulattoes are illegal and void. California wasn't always woke, I guess. Florida, uh, marriages between white and other races, forever prohibited. Wyoming, they're illegal and void. Medicine. Alabama says no person or corporation shall require any white female nurse to nurse in wards or rooms or hospitals, either public or private, where Negro men are placed. So you can't assign your nurse to a room if, you know, different races. Georgia doesn't let Negroes and white persons together in the same apartments. I think I think by apartments they mean uh, hospital rooms, but I'm not sure. Georgia, look, even cemeteries. The officer in charge shall not bury or allowed to be buried any colored persons upon ground set apart for use for the burial of white persons. You can't even decompose next to each other. Education. We already know governments love to get their mitts in education. This is where all the separate but equal, a lot of separate but equal stuff. New Mexico, separate rooms should be provided for teaching pupils of African descent. North Carolina, the librarian, separate place for use of colored people in the library. Oklahoma, uh, any instructor who shall teach in any school, college, or institution where members of the white and colored races are received and enrolled as pupils for instruction shall be deemed guilty of a misdemeanor and upon conviction thereof shall be fined. Texas. County Board of Education shall provide two schools, sorry, shall provide schools of two kinds, those for white children and those for colored children. So, okay, so this is the state of the world that we're in. we got a bunch of states running around enacting racist laws. Forcing racism. Now, notice that even... Even back then, we'd already conceded so much power to the states. Right? They have power over our businesses, over our marriages, over medicine, education, playgrounds, and cemeteries. The states got power over all that stuff. And granting the state this power in the first place was a collectivist step. It violates the principle of individual sovereignty. It places the collective or public good over the rights of the individual, and it grants power to the state to decide what that good is. And sometimes they decide that good is racism. 
So some things needed to change in the U.S. very clearly. Culturally, attitudes needed to change. Now, that, like, realistically, that takes generations. But legally, there was government-enforced racism left and right, and that needed to change. So the civil rights movement, you know, they recognize the injustice here. And various civil rights acts start to be passed. And then in August of 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. gives his famous I Have a Dream speech at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington. And in it, he delivers his most famous line, which is, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by their character. It's a good dream, right? It's a worthy vision. People rightfully cheered for and appreciated that part of the vision, at least. But of course, the next year, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed. And that act, along with others, helped ensure that Dr. King's four children would forever be judged by the color of their skin and not their character. But the same people cheered for it nonetheless, because they didn't either didn't understand or didn't care that the root of the evil of racism is collectivism. And you can't fight collectivism with collectivism. Now, what could have happened is we could have said, hey, you know, governments can't tell business owners who to hire or who to serve or how to run their business. They can't tell us who to marry, who to play pool with, who bars can serve. They can't do that. They have no business in education or medicine in the first place. Educators and doctors are sovereign individuals. They don't need to be subsidized or controlled. We could have helped defeat collectivism by reasserting individualist ethics. We could have said, look, the government, from now on, the government's going to treat people as individuals because that's the right thing to do. We're going to eradicate state-sponsored racism. And now that we're in this position of moral, uh, moral high ground, now that we have the moral high ground because we recognize collectivism for what it is, we can condemn racism when it occurs privately, even though sticking to our principles means the government can't force you to do it. It can be condemned morally. And we can turn this into a cultural battle of ideas. And I think that I personally, I think racist ideology would have failed in a battle of ideas. But we didn't do that. We kept it going. We kept racism as part of the uh, discussion because we kept it as part of, we kept the collectivism and, and the racism as part of our laws. So instead of that, we increased government violation of individual sovereignty, and we doubled down our, on our collectivism. So here's the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I'm not going to read the whole act. I'm only going to read a couple sentences here and there. Um, for the purposes of this discussion, let's put aside the sections in here that pertain to government behavior, voting rights, public education, setting up commissions. I'm just going to read, and there's problems with some of those, right? But I'm just going to read a portion of Title II and Title Seven. Okay. Title II, injunctive relief against discrimination in places of public, there's that word again, be careful with that word, public accommodation. Section 201A, all persons shall be entitled to the full and equal enjoyment of the goods, services, facilities, and privileges, advantages, and accommodations of any place of public accommodation as defined in this section without discrimination or segregation on the ground of race, color, religion, or national origin. They threw in religion and all their stuff. Okay. Um, 
So they're saying you can't discriminate on public. Now they're going to define public. Here are all the things that the government is declaring they have power over as, quote, public spaces. Any inn, hotel, motel, or other establishment provides lodging to transient guests, blah, blah, blah. Any restaurant, cafeteria, lunchroom, lunch counter, soda fountain, or other facility, blah, 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 engaged in food consumption, blah, blah, blah. Uh, any motion picture house, theater, concert hall, sports arena, stadium, other place of exhibition or entertainment. Uh, this n- number four is a little bit hard to read, but basically it's anything nearby physically, right? Physically located within the premises or within the premises, which is physically located, uh, or serve hold itself out as serving patrons of such covered establishments. So, you know, you're near that counts. You're public. Okay. Let's title two. Again, I don't want to get into legal, legal use is boring. Let's look at title seven. Title seven is, uh, Equal employment opportunity. They go on. The first part is defining what an employer is and unions and everything else. Okay. Section 703A, it shall be unlawful employment practice for an employer to fail or refuse to hire or to discharge any individual or otherwise to discriminate against any individual with respect to his compensation terms, conditions, or privileges of employment because of such individual's race, color, religion, sex, or national origin or to limit, segregate, or classify his employees in any way which would deprive or tend to deprive any individual of employment opportunities or otherwise adversely affect his status as an employee because of such individuals' race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. So what's the result of this crap? It's easy to cheer on that if you don't see the problem with collectivism. It's easy to go, yeah, you shouldn't do that. I'm going to cheer, right? It's easy to do if you don't get the philosophy. But what's the result of this? Well... Um, two major things. One, the federal government uh, has the power to tell you whom to serve, whom to hire, how to do it. Like we've, we're giving that power to the federal government, not just the state governments. Now, the federal government has that power. And what we're doing is we're saying, well, the federal government's going to take the entire population and we're going to split it into these groups. See, here are the groups. And we're going to apply this lens of what group you're in to how regulate how to regulate businesses and, and other establishments. That's what we're going to do. And if we see too many people of one group and not enough of another or whatever, we're going to suspect that you're in violation of these rules. Now, note that this is inherently dehumanizing, right? It, it views individuals as members of – like fungible members of a group. Um, but group status, thanks to this and other laws like it, Group status is now an officially relevant attribute in terms of the application of law. Now, of course, a system based on collectivism will result in injustice. And, of course, if you had said that at the time, you'd probably say you're racist. How could you be opposed to this? Blah, blah, blah. If you stood up and said, this is collectivist, guys. It's a bad idea. Individuals will unjustly suffer. In fact, they must unjustly suffer because individuals are not primarily defined by their group membership. And if you expect individual justice, you need individualism. And, you know, you'd have been yelled at just being racist and a horrible person and blah, 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 blah. So what happened? Let's fast forward 30 years. The year is 1989. We're at Stanford Law School. Along comes... Kimberly Crenshaw. Oh, Kimberly Crenshaw. This is one of the 
seminal work, so let's say, on this is, I think, where she defines the term intersectionality or the first place that I know the term intersectionality being used. This is part of the canon of critical race theory now, as loosely defined. And this paper is where she introduces this concept of, of intersectionality. I'm not going to read the paper. I guess if you really want, someday we can go through the paper. I've got extensive notes and, and I've, I've gone through her papers in the past, but I don't think it's really worth it. Um, I'll just give you a quick summary. This is where she introduces this concept of intersectionality and she applies critical theory, methods of critical theory, basically, um, the philosophy of critical theory, she applies it to race. Um, now, obviously there was Richard Delgado stuff predates this, but um, I think she's credited actually with, well, as one of the people inventing, coining the term critical race theory. Anyway, what's her motivation here? This is, so in case you don't know, Kimberly Crenshaw is a black female um, lawyer. Thus, it's a legal theory, right? <laughs> Just black female lawyer. Um, what's her motivation? What's her justification for introducing this paper? This paper, by the way, is called Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex, a Black Feminist Critique of Anti-Discrimination Doctrine, Feminist Theory, and Anti-Racist Politics. Interestingly, it doesn't say this is a legal theory, but whatever. It is published, I think, in Stanford Law Review or something like that, I don't remember. So in this paper, she reviews three court cases in which she believes that black female plaintiffs were denied justice. That's the heart of this paper. Um, and the argument goes something like this. Civil rights legislation protects blacks as a, as a category, as a group, and it protects women as a group, but it doesn't protect black women. And this is because when the law is applied to cases of racial discrimination, the plight of black men is compared to that of white men. And if there's not a difference between them, there was no racial discrimination, right? But when the law is applied to cases of sex discrimination, the plight of white women is compared to the plight of white men. And if there's no difference, then there's no sex discrimination. And the argument here is that black women sit at the intersection of, you know, blackness and womanhood or whatever, right? And that discrimination against that combination flies under the radar. So, for example, if you said, well, I'm not going to hire black women. I'll hire women. I'll hire black men. I'm not going to hire black women. If a black woman then tried to take you to court and argue that you violated the Civil Rights Act of 1964, you would say, well, look, here's all the black men I've hired. So clearly I'm not discriminating against blacks. And here's all the women I've hired. So clearly I'm not discriminating against women. And the judge, at least in the cases that she cites here, would throw out the idea of intersecting the two and say, no, black women are their specific category. Um, and she said to judge, she said, look, you can't take all the permutations of this stuff and do this. It's too complex. And here's the thing. I can't believe I'm about to say this. Here's the thing about Kimberly Crenshaw's argument here, at least this part of it. She's right. She's right. If you have a legal system that treats people as members of groups, then at the margins of those members, which by the way is another term she uses, her 1991 paper is called Mapping the Margins. At the margins, in other words, at the intersection where membership status of those groups overlaps, the law can in fact break down. I think she's right about that. 
It doesn't mean her solution is, solution is correct. But her solution is to target what's being used as the standard in her view, which is white men, right? So remember the example above, black men were compared to white men, white women were compared to white men. The common factor here is white men. So her solution fits what you would expect from radical leftism, which is we're going to identify literally everything as a product of white cis heteronormative patriarchy and then destroy it. That's the answer, right? Because that's because that's the commonality that things are being compared to. Okay. Now, look, I have heard people, I, I think maybe Jordan Peterson said this, but I don't, I don't, I don't want to blame him for saying this. I don't know. But I've heard people that, that say, well, look, if you take intersectionality to its logical conclusion, you end up back at individualism. So in other words, they say, well, you know, you've divided the population into categories based on race and sex. Intersectionality demands that we further divide them into smaller categories. So here's this intersection. So this is black women. We're going to that. That's a category now. And you can further do that and be like, well, here's a category for black trans women. Right. And then you could do it further and be like, well, here's a category for half Pakistani, half Nigerian black trans or half Nigerian trans women. OK, and you can keep going. Right. And eventually you subdivide enough that you get to treating everyone as individuals again. That's that's the argument and or that's the, the characterization of this. Um, that is wrong. It's a raw. It's a false. It's a bad characterization. Because even if you subdivide these categories down to the individual level. Even if you get to a category that's like half Pakistani, half Nigerian, 23-year-old trans woman in Akron, Ohio, that's your category. And there's one person in the world who meets that category. Even if you, you break it down that much. Well, that's still not that person. That person is not a list of their unique membership statuses, right? People are not the sum of their group memberships. You're, you're still not treating them like an individual. At that point, you're just treating them like a summation of group memberships. Even if that summation is unique to that particular individual, you're not treating them as an individual. Intersectionality is not a low-resolution version of individualism. You can't just increase the, the resolution on collectivist groupings and get smaller and smaller groups until you arrive at individuals. No, that is wrong. Collectivism and individualism are not a difference in degree. They're a difference in kind. In one view, individuals are the philosophical primary. And you develop ethics based on individual sovereignty. Individuals being the primary. Their group membership is ancillary. It's secondary to that. And in another view, collectives, groups are the philosophic primary. And you develop ethics based on collective good. Right. I've talked extensively about why collective good is not even a conceptually valid term, but that those are the differences. So when we push back against intersectionality or critical race theory or social justice and wokeism, I, I realize those are all different, but um, they're all kind of variants of one another based on shared collectivist ideology and, and in many cases nowadays used sloppily interchangeably. So when we push back against this stuff, it's important to do so from a principled individualist perspective, which means we don't say, well, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was, it was pretty good. You know, it was, you know, it was good, it was a good step, but we just, we went too far. We, you know, no, it wasn't pretty good. It wasn't great. It federally enshrined the categorization of people based on race and sex. That's what it did. It is fundamentally anti-individualist, unlike, for example, 
14th Amendment. And where we are today is an inevitable result of adopting these kinds of collectivist ideas. And, and people like Crenshaw, who want to capitalize on that to push an agenda, will find exploitable real problems. So they say, hey, this doesn't work in this case. She's right. Now, if you reround history without correcting this mistake of accepting collectivist ideology and then start it over, you just end up right back where we are in a few decades. And I think I see too many people rightly, rightly they're seeing that something is wrong here and they're pushing back, but they're doing so with a conservative mindset. And I mean that derisively. They're doing this with a conservative mindset, which is like, well, things were better before. I guess we should go back. That's low IQ. It's ultimately a failing strategy. At the very least, if you're going to push back on this stuff, which you should, you should take a moment to think about where did America go wrong philosophically, identify that error, attempt to correct it. These are hard questions. How did we go wrong? How do we prevent it? I don't I don't know the answer to how to prevent this other than like explaining it. But I mean, the explaining it doesn't work. There's got to be like, there more than just explaining it to the few people who are going to listen to reason is, is going to work. Like, but these are hard questions, but this is what we have to focus on. Not just let's rewind because 1964's act was great. Conservatism sucks because it's anti-intellectual. And I mean that it's anti-conceptual. It doesn't make principled arguments about anything. It's just like, I don't like moving forward. Can we slow down or go back? That's all it is. And sometimes moving forward is bad, but you got to identify why. Where did you take the wrong turn? Why did you take the wrong turn? What mistakes did we make? And how do we prevent those mistakes moving forward and in the future? All right. We're going to do a, a combination palate cleanse slash segue. Um, oh, wait. First, I'm going to, I'm going to, there's a super chat I just want to read from I'll Fight You Naked. And I feel bad because he sent a super chat, I think, on Monday and I forgot to get to it. So, K affirmative, brown, J action. <laughs> well, it is affirmative action, right? Yeah, which is group-based. Right. Again, people kind of said this without saying explicitly. They're like, hey, isn't isn't saying that you want to, that you nominate a, a black female kind of collectivist and weird? Yep. Yep, it is. Also, by the way, congratulations to Omar Pancake, who's been a member for... 15 months and just I got a little notification there. All right. So let's do let's do a palate cleanser slash segue. Someone sent uh this in our in our Discord. I forget who it was. I'm sorry. It may have been Pirate Tomsky. I don't know who it was. Uh internal internal Discord. This is for those of listening, it's from Reddit slash non-binary, which I guess is a Reddit group. Um, and the poster wrote, deal with it. And they just proceeded to have a bunch of ones and zeros. It looks like it might be ASCII digits, but I can't tell. A bunch of ones and zeros, <laughs> um, which I just found funny. Uh, and then this person was apparently permanently banned from participating in slash non-binary. <laughs> so there you go. All right. We're going to move on to the, the section of the show where I... I'm going to thank Katanji Brown Jackson. I want to, I really, I want to thank her for something sincerely, sincerely in quotes. 
I want to, I want to thank you for something. I really do. She was asked a question today by Representative Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Marsha said, can you provide a definition of a woman? Now, no, understand that this is a problem for any leftist to answer publicly, right? Because their real answer is whoever says they're a woman. And clearly that's the answer. We've already figured that out, right? Um, but even Congress hasn't devolved to the point where you can say that. You can't answer that question honestly if you're a leftist. Cameras there, regular people watching, you can't do that. On the other hand, Judge Jackson knows that she can't use any of the traditional definitions. She, of, like she can't say, well, women are females or based on chromosomes or, uh, uh, you know, gametes or reproductive organs or reproductive capacity or histrionics. I'm kidding on that one. Anyway, she, needs, she knows she needs to evade this question. She knows. And I don't think she's dumb at all. So she does successfully buy herself time by repeating the question back and kind of feigning incredulity. But ultimately, she needs to say something, and preferably something evasive. So let's see, let's see what she went with. Ready? Uh, can you provide a definition for the word woman? Can I provide a definition? Mm -hmm. No. Yeah. I can't. You can't? N not in okay. this context. So I'm not a biologist. Not a biologist. Of course, the idea that you need to be a biologist to define woman is ridiculous, right? Um, and I, I do want to take a moment to point out, this is part of the general centralization of intellectual credibility, right? This idea that everything requires a credentialed expert that's been approved by the cathedral. Like you can't say anything about natural immunity or vitamin C or sunlight and exercise because you're not Fauci. Only he could do that. You can't argue against critical race theory because it's an academic theory confined to law schools and you're not at Stanford Law, so sit down and shut up, right? Um, and the purpose of this strategy is to make knowledge inaccessible to normal people, right? As they say, knowledge is power, right? It's the Think of it as the opposite of Martin Luther's democratization of biblical interpretation, right? It's like, it's like the church trying to tell people that, oh, you're incapable of understanding the Bible. You have to go through ordained priests. Don't trust yourself. You have to trust us. Right. And this is the left's attempt to create a priesthood. This is why they do this. They want to rob you of any confidence in the efficacy of your own cognition. You're too dumb. You've got to trust us. You've got to trust the approved experts. There's the fact checkers and there's Facebook and there's blah, blah, blah. like got to trust the experts. You're too dumb to figure this shit out. Right. And it, it's the control. It's like it's a control strategy. It's transparently a control st strategy from wannabe despots. So, of course, Jackson is on board with this kind of authoritarian elitism. Um, but that's not what I want to thank her about. What I want to thank her uh, for is the expert that she chose. Right? She didn't say, well, I'm not a gender studies major, so I can't define woman. Right? She didn't say, I'm a not a philosopher. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not a TikTok personality with purple hair, so I can't define woman. Right? She didn't say any of that stuff. No. She said, I'm not a biologist. 
Oops. <laughs> Oops. I think she just inadvertently admitted that being a woman has something to do with biology. Oops. So for that mistake, I would like to thank her. Thank you. Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, your answers have been measured and careful up to this point. So I appreciate the slip up on this one. I really do. It's pretty awesome. All right. I think we're done for the day. Um, and there's so much, there's so much stuff to talk about. Sometimes I don't know whether to throw just a whole bunch of unrelated stuff. I mean, there's SEC's got climate disclosure rules they're wanting to push now. There's so much stuff going on. Um, maybe we'll talk about it another time. But I think we've, you know, this was a perhaps controversial. Maybe it wasn't. I expected people to be mad that I criticized the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which should never have been passed. But, you know, hey, um, thank you guys for sticking around. You've probably already subscribed to Unsafe Space. So thank you. If you forgot to subscribe, why not do it? Cost you nothing. Helps us. Please help us grow the unsafe space, unsafe space community. Share this content with someone uh, that you want to be in the community. Um, and an enormous thanks again to those of you who support us financially. Go to unsafespace.com. As always, I love topic suggestions, feedback. If it's not moronic feedback, I don't. I, I'll be honest. Dumb feedback, I, I don't really like. But like you know, there's been plenty of times when the awesome criticism has has, has been used as fodder for another discussion. It's been great. So I do appreciate that. Please go ahead and uh, and give me feedback there. And also as a reminder, on Friday, well, yeah, on Friday is the new, the next new episode of Token Minority Report, um, which is a little bit more frivolous. So you can check that out. And then on Monday, we'll return for Narrative Dissonance, which is... Uh, more about the news and stuff like that. So thank you all for paying attention. Uh, thanks for doing some street philosophy with me, and I will see you all later. Have a good one. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, Check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server, which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning, this is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production may be Russian propaganda. The following individuals are suspected of questioning one or more official narratives. Experts agree that there is an epidemic of sexually uninformed five-year-olds, and Florida is the cause. Here's an idea, why not stop complaining, and buy a Tesla? I'm sorry, there is no record of a COVID pandemic. You must be mistaken. If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. 
that's not your job. Thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice courtesy. Never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.